0: even without quotas there's still ways to hold someone accountable towards doing their job i mean you know just plenty of ways it's just with that i think people feel again going back to this culture thinking well this is the easiest thing to measure which means that i kind of have more control and understanding over it whereas without them there is a bit more of a free reign to be able to develop people and build a more effective culture and better not just sales but people
1: Hi, friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Chris Hatfield. Chris is the founder of Sales Psyche, which works to develop and support the mental health and performance of sales teams and managers. Now, in part of the ongoing conversation we're having on this program about all aspects of mental health and sales, today Chris and I talk about tackling the stigma of mental health in the workplace. Chris and I have a wide-ranging conversation about the impact of mental health on performance at all levels in sales, individual contributor and at the management level, and why mental health, mental resilience, really represents one of the biggest threats to the overall well-being of a sales team, especially in today's uncertain environment. So we dig into the unacknowledged cost of mental health on a sales organization, on the individual, You know, look at it in terms of lost work days, diminished performance, and more. We go deep into how to create a healthy sales culture. And the changes in perspective required on the parts of managers and individuals alike in order to build and sustain that culture. And then we talk about Chris's four keys to mental resilience and why he believes the key to sales brilliance is indeed mental resilience. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Chris, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thanks. All right, let's jump into it. Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks very much, Andy. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, my pleasure. So uh where have you been sheltering during the pandemic?
0: Sheltering in good old London. Uh, London. down.
1: Yeah. And sort of they're like going through a second lockdown now, right?
0: We are. We're coming to an end of it. We've got a week and a, a week and a bit, but we'll see what happens after that. See how well behaved people
1: are. <sighs> yeah. Well. Yeah, good luck on that. (laughs) At least based on behaviors here in Southern California. Um, Yeah. I mean, the big thing is, I mean, you're a soccer fan, as am I, and a big Premier League fan, and it'd just be nice to see fans back in the stadium. I mean, it's really Mm -hmm. weird watching all the matches. And my audience is accustomed to me talking about this, because I talk about soccer all the time. But um, it's just weird watching the matches and no energy missing from from the 60,000 people or however many.
0: Yeah, it's just it, it. feels very soulless, and even though there's fake crowd noise, which I don't like having on, no, I actually prefer no, to hear I mean, what the managers are saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, I want to hear them yelling at the team. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, well, that that day's it's going to come. We've got all this good news about the vaccine. Hopefully, it uh, proves to be what it says it is, and we can get that distributed. in maybe I don't know, six months, a year. Well, <laughs> I think at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. So even if it's six months or a year. At we least know we're heading in the right direction. So, um, well, to that point, what's, what's this is a favorite question I'm asking all my guests these days is what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so, actually, I quit my full time job during the pandemic. And good. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the opposite reaction to what people normally give me. Um, oh, usually, but what, usually think, it's like
1: you're crazy, what are you thinking? Yeah.
0: Um, but it it it's it's reaffirmed, I think. You know, I've I learned this over my over my career so far in life, but just reaffirmed it that there is always something better when you make that jump. If you if your gut instinct is telling you to trust it and back yourself, because when you do, then things will things will start happening because of that focus that you've got. So I think I've just the biggest thing I've learned throughout pandemic is is trusting myself, trusting the process, and, and looking back on things that didn't necessarily make sense but do now. Mm-hmm.
1: So you quit your other job in order to devote full-time to sales psych?
0: Yeah, so um, sales psych has kind of been in the, it, well, people will say, oh, how long have you been thinking about it? I suppose it's been a process of my whole career, but I didn't actually think of the business until I was on furlough this year, actually, mm-hmm. um, but the, the passion behind it and the kind of focus has been building bit by bit over time, which points to what I just mentioned around not necessarily making sense. But when you look back, all the pieces were then put together.
1: Yeah, interesting because I mean it, it seems very well thought out, So we're gonna we're gonna dive into that. So you have had. Multiple conversations on this this show about mental health and sales. We've got having more coming out. It's a regular topic we're trying to address. Mm -hmm. But uh, sales psyche—if I pronounce you—we pronounce the e on the end. Um, You're really taking sort of a different approach to that because you're instead of saying, "Gosh, here are resources to help you," you're talking about what are the strategies we can implement for prevention and intervention with sellers. Uh, before it becomes a crisis.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, what going back to the kind of pandemic, what it's done, is lifted this veil off of around the topic of mental health, and I think made people sit up and, and pay attention to it more of how important it is. And I think, you know, it's it's not enough now just to talk about it, just to say, look, we're here if you need to to talk, and that is important still, of sure. course, but. I felt one of the reasons why I started it was that's all people were doing is talking about it, and it's good to, that people are able to now be more open with it, and it's more of a conversation on things like LinkedIn. But it's more about, as you mentioned, going to the preventative piece and going, what can we do to help people, reps and managers before they even get to that point.
1: Well, and even a bit larger, I think you're aspiring to say is, look, how do we actually change sales cultures and corporate mm-hmm. cultures in such a way as to to integrate. Prevention intervention into that, um, and I want to dive into that. But but just you know, sort of leading off is seems like one of the the real impetus. to start this was that you mentioned you suffer from some pretty debilitating anxiety earlier in your sales career. So what were you selling, and what happened?
0: Yeah, so it started developing when I was at university, and I started noticing it, and then. Came out, I did sports coaching at university. So that's where the kind of coaching blood for me comes in. What were you uh, coaching? uh, Football. Football. Football, Soccer to your main audience. Well, Um, yeah. Football to me, soccer to most of them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that's where it kind of started. And then I, for some reason, I think again, this is probably part of me pushing into my uncomfortable zone, started doing door to door sales. So 100% commission only. Lost in oil insulation and solar panels.
1: Solar panels and insulation. Okay. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. which isn't bad in England to be honest, because it, it's very cold. <laughs> you need to, yeah, that's right. You need
1: <laughs> cold and damp? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Where's so? But the solar panels. You don't really think of London as being. I know you don't need to have direct sunshine, <laughs> you mm. know, cloudless skies, in order to capture solar. But it seems like it helps, doesn't
0: it? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, the rent a roof scheme, which is basically rent your roof out for thirty years.
1: Oh. Okay. Got it. All right. Yeah. But minimize your power bills basically to nothing. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I'd ask people, what color are your tiles? And they say, I don't know. And I said, well, you don't look at your roof much, do you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I probably couldn't have answered that. Well, that's not that out here. us all sort of, you know, stucco colored stuff. But yeah. Um, all right. So, so what happened? Was there some like moment where it's like, you know, an anxiety attack or something. It's was just like, okay, this I need to deal with this.
0: It, it was probably a, a culmination of moments and just sort of realizing when it happens. And for people who find it hard to, to empathize with anxiety, I always use the analogy. It's a bit like you, you're you expecting a test to be sprung on you. You don't know when, you don't know where, you don't know what any of the answers are, but your life depends on it. That's the kind of like feeling yeah. I tell people yeah. and straight away. They're like, I get it. <laughs> um, yeah. It was it was a, it was a number of moments that kind of made me feel like that. And when when I was feeling that way, I, I couldn't I couldn't operate properly. I want to lock myself away. I didn't want to talk to anyone. And I just sort of felt like I don't want this to be my life. I don't want this to be a label that just sabotages me. I don't want to go on to medication and and just be you know guided by my limitations of what I can't do because of this mm-hmm. feeling.
1: Mm-hmm. And You talk about how you've learned how your anxiety could serve you rather than, as you just said, sabotage you. So, how does your tell us about that? And what was that learning curve? And and how does your anxiety serve you today?
0: Yeah, I think you know it's it's been a process uh, along the way. And but what I've found now is actually when my when I start to feel anxious about things, it's actually benefiting me because it's telling me something isn't quite right. And if it is, then I go back and check it, and I'm reassured. And if it isn't. I'm then able to stay on top of things. It's really helped me be proactive mm-hmm. with my business, with, with my previous roles, at thinking ahead about like, the possibilities of what could go wrong and, and being proactive in developing it. So I actually look back and go, do you know what, I'm really grateful that I'm, I'm anxious and, uh, because and I think a big thing around this is your, your mindset and your perception towards it. You know, All emotions are there to serve us, and I think it's just our perception sometimes that sort of filters that in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: hmm
1: Yeah, well, I, yes. And, yeah, perspective is is very key. And, yeah, we're going to dig into that, too, I mean, as we go through, because I think it's, it's you talk about sort of needing a change of perspective about a number of things, and I think that will help the mental health, mental well-being of, of sellers. And I I agree. Um, so, before we get into that, though, is, is, so tell us about what you're trying to do with sales psyche.
0: Yeah, so so I, I'll start with our mission. The mission is to create healthier minds, sales pipelines, and, and vibrant cultures. It's focusing on with sales reps and managers, providing them with the tools and, and the understanding to develop and reinforce their mindset, not just their skill set. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the preventative piece. It's bringing that education and that understanding around it. And I've started talking more recently about these kind of three A's around it in the attention right. awareness and action so bringing attention to some of these topics that are either just ignored or taken for granted by people that maybe don't struggle with them as much then the awareness piece is being able to label this because that's the biggest thing you know with any coaching as well if we're not just talking about mental health and well-being here the sooner you can label something the sooner you can understand it and building someone's self-awareness around going ah do you know what I've got imposter syndrome or I've been struggling with burnout straight away helps them understand it a lot more and then being able to provide them with the action to then go forth and either book in a session to have a confidential and impartial conversation with a coach um, or by providing them with courses, anonymous Q&As and morning mindset sessions to help them build that understanding and that knowledge around it.
1: And I think it's important for people to understand as as you just pointed out that That what we tend to overlook completely, almost I would say, in sales, just as a you know sort of cultural artifact, is the direct tie between performance and and mental well being. And as you also pointed out, I mean, this is not just we're not just talking about depression and anxiety; we're talking about. Addiction, substance abuse—we're talking about. You—you mentioned imposter syndrome, right? I mean, um, there's all sorts of fears that manifests itself that for sellers that the answer has always been before is, well, what training does this person need?
0: <laughs> yeah. As
1: opposed to, uh, let's try to really understand what's going on, and perhaps it is one of these things. That's that's you know. Things in personal life, you know, I've gone through a divorce, and let me tell you, my performance during that period was not good. Uh, even though mm. I thought it was, I thought it was okay, but yeah, it wasn't right. I mean, you just you can't fool yourself, uh, or maybe you can fool yourself, but you can't fool others. Let's say, yeah. So, but in my case, I was lucky; I had, yeah, uh, you know, an empathetic boss that that understood what was going on. But most people aren't so lucky.
0: No. No, they're not, and you know. I think people just need to to remind themselves that very, very, very rarely will someone be underperforming intentionally. There is always a reason behind it, and the best thing you can do is to go in and look to understand the problem or the challenge that they're going through, and and, and have a conversation with them before coming in with "you need training," "you need a pip," "you need this x, y, and z," and making assumptions.
1: Yeah, well, I mean that people are undergoing some sort of mental stress that pip is always a great hammer to use.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, there was just some conversation about that uh, online you know, on LinkedIn not that long ago. It's like yeah, what are we what are we doing you know when that's the case oftentimes if you're not really interested in getting to the bottom as a manager of what's happening to this individual that especially if it's a stress related issue that's holding them back I mean, the pip just blows them up, right? It's it's guaranteed that person you're escorting that person to a new career opportunity. Um, So yeah, I mean, and you you document on your website. I think some of the things we've talked about in this show, um, yeah, sort of a big threat to your sales success being mental well-being. But but it's sort of the again we tend to think about in terms of sort of the big moments, but. We don't think about it in terms of sort of the the unacknowledged impact of sort of day to day performance loss through not operating, you know, at sort of peak mental uh, capacity. I mean, really, people working at diminished levels, I think, is the biggest thing you see. I mean, you talk about two out of three sellers experiencing some form of burnout.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not those people aren't showing up; it's just they're not able to perform.
0: Yeah, exactly, and it, it is something that. You know, if you look at the numbers and you've probably seen it on the site, it costs the U.K. economy about 45 billion, and the U.S. economy about 100 billion, but two-thirds of that comes from presenteeism. So what you just mentioned there, it's not that right. people aren't turning up, it's when people are present, they're just not present <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> within, within the moment, like conscious, because so much other stuff is going on in their head. So it's not just about oh, people being off sick, it's well, how, how well are people coping when they are trying to work?
1: And the general explanation for presenteeism is, I said, big category. Do you see is lack of engagement? And it's like, well, okay. There's a, there's sort of this simplistic meaning there that somehow work is boring or you know managers aren't engaging with people to challenge them. But I think that's really too simplistic, right? I think that mm. for presenteeism, I would say the majority of it is people that are struggling.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is, and you know, sales is a a tough old game because of course, you know, when you're, when you're struggling and you're not performing, you feel like I need to go even harder. I I need to work more. And when you are performing, you think I still need to do the same thing because I still need to stay ahead of the game. And I don't want to lose that, that title and that recognition Mm -hmm. and it, and it causes people to find it very difficult to, to slow down. And I think what, going back to what I said earlier about this veil being lifted, I think it's always been there; these challenges, but because people have been so busy with everything, with socializing and and so on, they haven't taken time. Whereas now, being in isolation, people are sitting there with it, listening to their own thoughts and becoming more self-aware with them. That are actually realizing, "Ah, oh, do you know what? This is something that I might have been masking beforehand by just being busy with everything else."
1: Well, but isn't the big danger that as we begin to see light at the end of the tunnel and and some return over again over the next? say six months to a year, to some sort of whatever this new normal state or next normal state will be, that suddenly everything gets brushed under the rug again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is that is a risk. And but I do I do feel like, you know, as I mentioned, I think people are paying more attention to it. And I think when we do go back to that environment, it will just be interesting to see who then thinks right okay well we'll go back to how we did things because I think people will they'll probably find a very big shock if they try and do that with the people they've actually you know over that time if they had started to do things differently then struggle to maybe retain those people
1: yeah well in your mind what what is a healthy sales culture a vibrant sales culture
0: I think there's a there's a few things I think you know big a big thing around it is this kind of coaching first mentality, of of always looking for a way to be able to empower someone and develop someone in anything that they they do within their role. To whether that's to help them become a a leader eventually, or just to help them become a better not just salesperson but a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know having that culture where leaders are there to develop them and develop them regardless of if they're going to move on or wherever they go to, but just focused on developing them as a person is, is a big thing. And then I, I think a big part of it as well is having that open conversation around and that understanding that addressing the elephant in the room, that it is tough, that you are going to face these kind of challenges that it's okay to talk about them. You know, don't just talk about all these great things you can achieve when someone starts address all the challenges that are going to come up because if you don't and someone encounters them, they're then going to think they're the up one out and they can't talk to anyone about it because no one's told them about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it, just listening to your answer is, is, you know, you lead off with coaching. And it's almost like we need a different word, right? I mean, I, I because so much of coaching these days in sales really is deal coaching, opportunity coaching, right? Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is the one that I think is the most important requirement. Of course, you're always good to do deal coaching. And as, is this personal development almost more of a mentorship in some regards. Um, the, I know people don't necessarily like that word, but it's not really, it's not tactical coaching either. It's, it's how are you helping this individual develop in a way to be, in order to achieve their goals. And everybody sort of acknowledges it, but they always sort of default to doing the tactical coaching. And I just wonder what you're seeing in terms of companies being receptive to actually enabling their managers to learn how to become this type of coach.
0: Yeah, it's it, i think it why it always reverts back to that is that's the quickest route to seeing an outcome sometimes is thinking we coach on focus on deals and focus on numbers. That's the biggest way we can measure it. And therefore that's how we need to to do things. Whereas I think, you know, what this might seem like, it's not necessarily as a quicker fix. But in the long run, what you're doing is you're building the foundations that you can then start to build the other stuff on top of. It's similar to, you know, why people might want to give advice rather than coaching in the first place because they think it's a, a quicker route. But what you're doing is actually just getting people to come back to you over and over, and you're not empowering anyone else in the business, which is not a good way to scale. So I think that's a that's a big part there is is realizing, you know, what well, it might take a, a longer a bit of a longer period, but it's going to be far more sustainable and create a far more consistent approach to it as well.
1: Yeah, which I agree with 100%. I, I, the goal of coaching, in my mind, uh, if I'm coaching a salesperson, and again, distinguish this from you know, doing a pipeline review, an opportunity review, is is yeah, how can I help them become more self-sufficient? How can I help them do recognize and solve problems that they encounter? Um, you know, how can I help them through this process? Learn how to improve.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, I, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. If you're doing anything else, as you said, as a manager, and I think a lot of managers are sort of feed off this is they they want people to be dependent on them, right? This is where mm-hmm. what they think their job is is you know I want them to come and ask me a question about every little thing. I want them to you know come to me for my advice as opposed to. And it was a great book written recently by Michael Bungay-Stanier called The Advice Trap, a follow-up to his book The Coaching Habit, which talks about this, where it's it's just so easy to fall into this, this habit of, as a manager, of giving advice as opposed to helping people learn how to identify the problems they're trying to solve, how to define them, and give them the tools to solve it.
0: Yeah, and it, it comes it comes back to what I mentioned before around this imposter syndrome piece, where that in itself might be an underlying reason why managers like that need to feel like they need to justify themselves because they're Mm. almost like, you know, there's four different types of imposters that people can suffer with. And a number of them make them feel like, you know, I need to have an answer for everything. I need to be able to do this because otherwise, what am I doing? Where's the value I'm adding in my role? Which makes people feel insecure, which is why they're doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think sort of with that for managers and for leaders, and you've refer to this as well. And I, I think this is really a part of it is is if we're gonna address our sort of the mental well-being issues is we need to have some changes in perspective within sales itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um you know, you talk about it's it's you know if you're not addressing how someone actually perceives the situation,
0: <laughs> then you're
1: never gonna achieve long lasting change. So I was wondering what sort of perspectives, you know, you're referring to that you think Need to change in order to start empowering. You know this change.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a few around this. I think the perspective, uh, well, one of them we've we've addressed already on around what you should be coaching on and what you should be focusing on. I think the other perspective is you know this this fixed and, and growth mindset around this particular topic as well about being mm-hmm. able to develop behaviors and attitudes and. You know, people look at skills and think, yeah, we can train that. But that's why I think people don't focus so much on attitudes, habits, and behaviors because it's a bit more like, oh, it's, you know, we're just going hire, to hire the people for that. And that, whatever we get them like, that's how they're going to be. We're going to test,
1: test them. And this magical assessment is going to tell us who has you know, the right DNA for sales.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which I,
1: I think is BS. But yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah. So I think you know they're, they're, the, they're the perspective. And also, I just feel like the perspective on how valuable it is to to educate people around their mental health and well-being. I mean, Deloitte published a report earlier this year saying that companies who are investing in employees' well-being are now seeing a five-to-one ROI return. So for a dollar, every dollar they spend, they're getting $5 back, mm. which, which is showing that you know even if you don't have that moral obligation to do this, there is a financial benefit of doing it as well. And it, it's saying, do you know what, actually, if, if we work on these foundations, regardless of someone coming in, how much experience they've got, if we invest in this and help them make a make them a better person rather than just their role, then they will see that value we're providing to them as well. And we'll also just help them become a, a more well-rounded, healthier human being.
1: Yeah, well, it's always interesting you bring up that Deloitte figure it sort of reminds me of i don't think it was deloitte but another similar firm had done a study about diversity in mm-hmm. in corporate hiring and it's funny as these these aspects like yeah diversity or acknowledging the importance of mental health in overall performance of not just sales but an organization is these things that people fear the most that if they actually you know people because quite honestly you know so many managers fear diversity. That's why we're not seeing more diverse workforces and so on. Is is if they address these topics they fear, they actually do better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things, and I've had a couple of people say this to me, is oh, if we start talking about more about mental health and well-being in our company, isn't it giving people excuses to to get out of things? And, you know, people have said that and sure, Uh, that's
1: not surprising at all.
0: No, but I I feel like, well, okay, there's a few things to that. One is if people, you feel like you've got people in your business who are going to do that, that's probably down to you to maybe like think about your hiring strategy and are you bringing the right kind of people in, but also people, if you're not talking about it, people are still suffering with this, but they might just be saying, I've got a stomach ache, I've got the flu. I'm not well. So it, when we start talking about physical health, are we worried of, or we can't mention that in case someone says they've got a cold and they don't want to come in today, or mm-hmm, they've got a stomachache? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's the same thing. People are just labeling it different and right. suffering in silence, which is causing a bigger problem.
1: Right. Well, I th- I think there are other perspectives that need to change though too that I think contribute to sort of the sort of toxic cultures that exist so often in sales, and you know one. One topic that you know people have been talking increasingly about is you know, is there still a role for quota mm. in sales? You know, is there some other way to measure people that um I don't say takes the stress out of it? Because there's always a performance aspect, you know, there's always stress associated with performance to some degree, but but you know, quotas just become this this hammer, and you know, we see the results, we see the studies, is that. You know fewer than fifty percent of sellers are even achieving their quotas so if that's the case and we've got you know two thirds of our sellers experiencing some level of burnout and so on, isn't that one perspective it just needs to change is you know how are we how are we measuring performance and how are we holding people accountable
0: yeah i mean when you when you think about quota it's just this number that is is plucked out and picked but then can dictate someone's career, their life, their their mood, everything around that, as you mentioned. I think you know, when we talk about stress, there's there are like stresses there to help us servers in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, and people react differently to stress, but I think that's the problem is that it causes that kind of chronic stress over time, which then leads to burnout around that. But I completely agree. I, I do feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and give people the answers to this, but I do feel like there is a way to start looking at this differently in terms of how how we are measuring reps to be able to provide that environment for them to feel supported um around that versus at the moment when when we're not providing the environment and we're still giving them this number to hit without the the full toolkit available to support them on that journey.
1: Yeah, I mean one idea I have, and I've managed teams using this in the past is 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 a productivity measure, which is based on Dollars in our case, dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: here's something that's yeah, you know, purely on, on sort of effectiveness, a little bit on efficiency. It's under the direct control of the individual. You know, if your productivity is at a certain level, as I was managing this this team, we had we knew what people's productivity was, and if they were investing sufficient hours, they were going to achieve a certain amount of, of revenue. But the attitude toward that was completely different than oh, I've got a number to hit. Yeah. Instead it was, well, how can I invest in myself in order to improve my my effectiveness in front of the customer in order to say, look, I can generate more dollars per hour that I devote to this particular task.
0: Mm, yeah. I like I like that.
1: I mean, another one, I think just from a perspective standpoint, is 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 this is a big one for me, is that when you look at the way we set up our, our sales processes, almost universally in sales, is they're all about persuading the customer to buy what we're selling,
0: mm-hmm. as
1: opposed to aligning ourselves to the buyer's journey and saying, we're here to serve you, to help you make a decision. And I think if people are sent out with that mission to say, well, look, we're here, we're here to, we are sincerely here to help. Uh, as our first, our first pass, right? We're going to help you identify the problem you're trying to solve. We're going to help you identify the options for how you solve this problem. And you take it from that perspective, where, you know, the focus more becomes instead of, let's say, you know, doing a discovery call that helps you know a certain amount of data, but doesn't Help you really understand, right? So we have all yeah. these steps in our process that are about getting through the step, as opposed to really understanding what the customer is trying to do. That I think are stress creators, and and we don't teach people how to appropriately go through that whole process in a way that that actually increases the odds of of, of winning. I mean, if when everything is, you know, you look at back in the old days, IBM Classic Five Call Close, which most sales processes today are an ancestor of. It's it's like okay, we prospect, we discover, we qualify, we we present, we propose, we close. It's like, well, what's that have to do with what the buyer's trying to do? And yeah, so I just think this 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 disconnect with our buyers is is part of the problem.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, again, it comes back to coach. If you've got a quarterly target or a monthly target, and yet you're that's not di- dictated by your buyer, that's dictated by you, which then leads to you trying to speed things up and not and just working towards a time frame rather than an actual objective. And I think a, a big thing of this comes down to how people are onboarded and developed initially as well. And where I've seen this work really well, when you first come in, if all you're doing is teaching your reps about your process, about your product, about what you do, then as soon as they get on the phone, that's pe- this level of confidence. If you're not necessarily confident in yourself initially, you'll be confident in what you've been told or taught. Trained on, so that's what you're going to talk about. So that's why it's so dictated on. This is our process, is what we do. Whereas if you flip it, and then the first couple of weeks you come in, you don't learn anything about your product, you learn everything about the customer's journey. You speak to the customer, you understand what's important to them, you learn about their world before yours. When you get on that that phone, you're far more likely to think, Oh, actually, I'm more confident in talking about their world. So tell me about this and and ask questions around that that then lead to a more of a natural and, and customer first approach to it.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. I, mean, I think that's it's this is a change of perspective that needs to happen. Like I said everything is dictated by this idea of persuasion, is our goal. And yeah, you know, it's sort of the height of irony that that behavior is one behavior that research has shown that universally everybody has a resistance to being persuaded. Uh-huh. Every human. So Makes sense that then we would train all of our sellers to lead with the one behavior that all of their customers universally hate, and if yeah. we think that we, we think that doesn't <laughs> contribute to the stress. We're kidding ourselves, and it doesn't have to be that way.
0: No, no, and I think that's why sales has a bad name is because. People only really remember their bad experiences. No one necessarily remembers a really good... Unless you're in sales, no one necessarily go, looks back and goes, do you know what? That guy sold to me so well. Because when it's good selling, it doesn't feel like selling. It, and also when when it's good, a good process, we build, we give ourselves more of the credit rather than who has sold to us thinking, do you know what? I made a really good decision on this holiday or this car, I got a really good deal. Mm. you are not saying, oh, do you know what? They sold to me really well. They negotiated. And it's because... You don't see it as selling. To your point, is that as soon as it feels like selling, that's when, that's when people sort of have that defense mechanism.
1: But I just think it's you are know, back to this idea about perspective. Is if we train our sellers to lead with a different perspective, then yeah, you know, I think the whole you know mental makeup of sellers begins to change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, completely agree. If they understand that that selling is actually really a leadership job, right? I mean, you're you're trying to and I think about leaders. One of the things leaders do is they clearly communicate a vision and inspire people to follow it. Well, isn't that what you're trying to do with your prospects? You're trying to clearly communicate a vision of what success looks like if they engage with you and provide them inspiration to follow you. And that's a whole different perspective than, yeah, go out and you know, persuade this person to buy from us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that.
1: And so I think that for me, these changes in perspective are, are so critical. I mean, you you talk about yeah, you have this nice model I like about, you know, that I think you call it the, the key to sales brilliance is based on mental resilience. And you identify four areas of that, and one is knowledge, which I agree. Though I think again, one we've sort of We sort of added stress into that unnecessarily in sales because again we, you know, take something like discovery. You know, we treat it as a discrete step in a selling process when actually it's it's something you do should do every time you interact with the prospect. Yeah, right. Because your job is not knowing which is what that one discrete step is. I'm going to ask them ten questions that I ask all my customers, and I serve at that point know what they want. You need to take the knowledge to the next level, which is understanding. Mm. And sellers, and I see this all the time with sellers I talk to that interact with me, is they don't feel like they have the time to get to that level of of understanding because they feel so pressed with everything they need to do, their activity metrics, and so on.
0: Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I think, as you mentioned, it's kind of like where we're asking sellers to work towards our sort of time frames rather than their the prospects. And then we're also not giving them enough time, as you mentioned there, to really understand about their world and, and have more of a natural conversation around it because of this arbitrary figure or number that we've put in place.
1: Yeah. Well the thing is companies still need to grow. But mm. I've worked I've worked in environments high tech or high growth tech companies that have been Yeah, big successes that that we in one in particular we didn't have yeah a sales culture, classic sales culture, right? I mean, we didn't have quotas, but the company grew grew well, very successful. In fact, this company today is a multi billion dollar company, still doesn't have a sales function. Yeah. So, it's, so it's not like yeah, they don't have a CRO, don't have CSO, don't have VP of sales. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're doing multiple billions of dollars a year in business-to-business sales and some b 2 c sales. It's like okay, I mean, it's like it's possible. You don't you don't have to. You know, and the CEO part of the reason we didn't have quotas, he said, well, it's because like, he didn't like the idea of running a business where people felt like there's a sword hanging over the back of their neck every month. Yeah you don't want to create that environment. So it's not like there's only one way to do this, you know, people listen to well if you don't have quotas. How do you hold people accountable? It's like, well, a number of companies that are doing it quite successfully.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and even without quotas there's still ways to 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 hold someone accountable towards doing their job. I exactly. mean, you know, just there's, there's plenty of ways. It's just with that I think people feel again going back to this culture of thinking well, oh, this is the easiest thing to measure, which means that I kind of have more control and understanding over it, whereas without them, there is a bit more of a free reign to be able to to develop people and and build a, a more effective culture and better not just salespeople but people.
1: Well, at the end of the day, that's that really becomes what it's about. Yeah, I mean, as a manager, and you referred to this earlier, as, as your desire should be is not just how do I. Ring the last ounce of revenue out of this person, but yeah, how do I how do I help them develop to the point where, geez, maybe they're ready for the next step, and if and if we're not the place to for them to be able to take the next step, then yeah, more power to them if they go somewhere else and find it, and that's fine because you did your job at that point. You helped that person be better when they left than when they showed up.
0: Yeah, exactly. And if you're creating that kind of culture they're probably then doing that with people in the team as well, or they 're running a team, so even if they they do leave, you don't have this massive gap sometimes of thinking, "Oh, this one person left, how are we going to fill it is you 're creating a culture where there's constantly people being developed all around yeah
1: well that 's the goal, so <laughs> we're going to keep working on that because yeah, I think that the in my pers yeah my perspective is is that is that we're just too often in sales, we're just aimed at the wrong target. Mm -hmm. And these are are attitudes and processes and systems we've used for close to 100 years now. Yeah, I find it so interesting that people always talk about this idea, this trope, I call it, about modern selling. But when you look at the average company's sales process and the sort of linear stage-based set of events, it's really no different than it was I said a hundred years ago. There might have a few more steps in it just because of technology and so on but but it's virtually the same, yeah, and we just haven't really even despite the trappings of of all the technology that that has flown into sales and marketing, <laughs> the way we execute selling has basically stayed the same. We just automated some of it, but I think for really to get this, this significant change in, in perspectives is, yeah, we need to start changing some of these fundamental things about how we onboard people and train them about what their what their responsibilities are, and you know, as I said, serving versus selling, understanding versus just knowing. I mean, things that 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 are really just basic human behaviors.
0: Yeah, and and I think one of the biggest. You know, big word thrown around in the last couple of years or more than that now is authenticity, and I think the kind of system in <laughs> place at the moment stops people from being authentic because it. Oh yeah, because it puts it into such a sort of robotic, unauthentic process.
1: Right. I mean, I, one of I speak out often about this this oxymoron that we hear so often in sales these days is yeah, mass personalization at scale. It's like okay, well, God, we have three oxymorons in that that one phrase <laughs> right there, and yet, yeah, I took that directly from a website of a company selling a sales engagement platform. It's like, yeah, that's not a human behavior. That's not authentic at all. Yeah. and I think, and maybe this, and this is an interesting issue we could explore at a later time. But is we know humans have this need for psychological consistency <laughs> is. Maybe that's one of the things people are struggling with is there's just this lack of consistency between how we label things and what they truly are. Right. I mean, mass personalization at scale, the other word for that is completely impersonal.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
1: All right. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so glad we got this chance. Um if people want to learn more about sales psyche, where can they do that?
0: Yeah, sure. So they can find us dot I wish someone had invented, when they invented the internet, if they could just change the three W's to say that. But www.salespsyche.co.uk. Uh, I also run a couple of podcasts, uh, Not Another Sales Podcast and Master Brilliance with Resilience. So you'll find them on Apple and Spotify as well if you want to check those out. And maybe you can come on there at some point, Andy. I,
1: hey, I'd love to. All you have to do is invite me. I'll be there. Perfect. All right. <laughs> I look forward to it. Well, Chris, thank you so much, and um, I'm sorry about Newcastle.
0: (laughs) That's fine. And then just 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 to mention, if anyone, you know, talking of of mental health and well being, if anyone does want a bit more information or you know just confidential, where's the best place to start? Because that's the hardest thing sometimes. Just drop me a message on LinkedIn. Always happy to to guide you in the right direction. All
1: right, Chris, thank you. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. We're ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest Chris Hatfield for sharing his insights and experience with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute, as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.